broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That is Jordan. And that over there is Carlin. Today we're going to be covering another fan selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we've been doing recently. We're going to cover fan selections like crazy because we have a lot built up. Yeah. Uh, the one this time is a 2001 release called Amelie. Amelie. French it, film, yeah, if you can't tell. It was a French film. And it actually, it was probably one of the most popular French films in quite a while. I think it's actually the highest grossing French film that came to America. Well, it's funny you talk about high grossing because I actually wrote down the budget versus how much money it's made. Oh, okay. The budget for this film uh, translated to $10 million. So, not incredibly expensive. Exactly. And what it made was $173,921,954. Making some money. Making some money. And that's not even talking about like the um, like the money that goes into streaming contracts and right. everything like that. So, probably even more money is being made as we speak. Well, it's funny you say that too because as we speak, this film is being adapted uh, for Broadway. Really? Yes. So more, more money. Hmm. Ching, ching, ching. Ching. Yeah. And it's 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 a fun movie, and it deserves the acclaim that it gets. Uh, just to describe a little bit about the movie, uh, to read the Netflix summary: When impish Amelie finds a long hidden trove of toys behind a baseboard in her apartment, she's inspired to return the items to their original owner. And really, that's only like the first quarter of the movie. Yeah, that's that's not even much. Um, it's like a two-hour film. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it says impish, she is very impish. Yeah. She's very like quiet and just demure, and she's an interesting character. Oh, I, I love what she, what she gets through in all the movie, like all the stuff that she does. Yes. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why this movie was such a big hit was because the character is very um, type B on the outside, but then she does some really crazy things yes. um, to compensate for injustices that she sees. Yes, and we'll talk about that later. Yes. Uh, the director for this film was Jean-Pierre Junet, yeah. uh, who also directed Alien Resurrection, Yes. as well as the French film Delicatessen, mm-hmm. which I've heard is really good and been, have been meaning to watch for some time now. I just haven't gotten around to and it. And he's actually the director of one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, French movie or otherwise, City of Lost Children. It is, I have not seen that either. Well, you, you should, because it is a steampunk, carnival-inspired version prequel to The Matrix. Okay. Yeah. I'm it, interested. It, it, it's it's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It actually has several of the same actors in cameo roles and minor roles in uh, here in Amelie that appeared in City of Lost Children. City of Lost Children um, actually starred um, Hellboy. Oh, Ron, Ron Perlman. Perlman. Ron Perlman as a as a as a strong man who was something of a simpleton. I like Ron Perlman. He's got a very iconic look too, yes. which plays well in most of the films he's been in. Yes, yeah. It, well, you see his face and you know immediately that it's Ron Perlman. Oh yeah, there's no mistake in that face. Yeah, but anyway, uh, City of Lost Children. Uh, I, I can loan you the DVD. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite films. All right. Um, but because that actually kind of pushed me away from watching Amelie. 
for a long time, and also Delicatessen, mm. which he directed, because City of Lost Children is so good in my mind mm. that I was afraid that Amelie and, and Delicatessen couldn't hold up to that. And, of course, Alien Resurrection, being the masterpiece that it is, just speaks for itself. Right. Uh, this film actually won Best Film at European Film Awards. It won four Caesar Awards, uh, two BAFTA Awards, and was also nominated for five Academy Awards. Yeah, so, so lots and lots of acclaim there. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the, the movie that put uh, Genot on the map. Yeah, oh yeah, um, definitely. At least internationally. Yeah. Another film that he's just recently released, like within the past couple of years, is a movie called The Young and Prodigious T.S. Spivet. Um, which I think is one of his first... Uh, well, no, Alien Resurrection would be. But it's it's another English language film. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and the, the, the stars of the film, there's... Um, I just wrote down a few of them real quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Audrey Tatao as uh, Amelie, and she was a lot of fun in this movie. Yeah, her um, acting was top-notch. This was actually only, like, the second feature film she had ever done, too. So she was, when she did this, she was, like, a, a, a brand-new newcomer to the uh, the thing. It, it, from what I understand, her first film role, um, she actually got as part of a talent, talent search that uh, Canal Plus did. So um, she did that film... And then Jeanneau saw her photo on a movie poster, and he had originally written this for an English actress who had to drop out of the project. Hmm. So he rewrote it in French and then um, auditioned uh, Tatao to be one of the first people uh, to, to play the role. And, of course, she won. Well, I'll say as far as acting then, since it's so early on, she hit the ground running. She did. She did. Um, some other films that she's been in uh, recent, well, not recently, but throughout her career, um, is this one is available on Netflix, so you can go ahead and look it up if you're interested. Uh, Dirty Pretty Things, um, which is, uh, I think, a, a thriller. Uh, and then also she was in Therese. Um, and uh, surprisingly enough, I didn't know this about her career, she was also in The Da Vinci Code. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I have not seen The Da Vinci Code, but I know of it, obviously. I read Everyone the novel does. and thought it was ridiculously fun, but never bothered to, to see the movie. Yeah, the movies usually are very loose right. with the uh, written material. Another another individual in this movie was Matthew Kasovitz, uh, and he uh, he was playing Nino, and Nino was Amelie's love interest in the uh-huh. film. Uh, some movies that he's been in um, include Amen, uh, and also The Fifth Element, oh, yeah. which is kind of a, a cult favorite for oh, science like fiction fans. And then he was also in Munich, which is okay. a really the ser- really serious movie about the um, the terrorist attacks on the Munich Olympics. So, I really enjoyed the way he played the character of Nino too. Nino was a fun character, very fun because character. he was he was a character who was sweetly naive. Um, but but had a really great personality to him, mm-hmm. um, and also like all he he had a collection of odd jobs that were just hilarious. Yeah, he he definitely did add a, a lot of interest to the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, another actor that I had written down was um, uh, Rufus. Rufus is a very famous French actor, so famous he he only needs one name. I guess. And um, he portrayed uh, Amelie's father, Raphael Poulain. Um, and he, some other films that he has been in include The Wedding Ring, Le Song Noir, 
and also Delicatessen. Oh, okay. So this was his uh, another workaround with uh, with Janelle to make sure that you know. I, I always find that interesting. Uh, we were talking about how um, Helena Bonham Carter gets used a lot by um, Tim Burton. Tim Burton. I can't remember his name today for some reason. <laughs> but you know, other actors do that all the time as well. Christopher Nolan does that a lot. Jeannot yeah. um, obviously has done it before. Uh, like I mentioned, the, uh, several of the people in City of Lost Children also pop up here in Amelie and side roles. Um, so it's something that, that I think people find what they like in an actor and then they, they try and make sure that they can use them for products. And of course, actors love it because it means job security. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Plus the other thing is, if you already have a relationship built with a director mm-hmm. and it's a either good or decent one, mm-hmm. it just makes it easier because you know what to expect when you're going to be working on the film. Exactly. As opposed to having to try to adapt to all the you know, idiosyncrasies and um, preferences of a new director. So. Yeah, and, and I, I would imagine that um, working with a new director is something that uh, takes a lot of... A lot of... Patience. Patience, and it also takes a lot of... Um, courage to do because you don't you don't they're going to push you in ways that you wouldn't expect very true yeah um i want to say uh from the get-go with this film the camera work i really liked it immediately and the colors the colors that were used yeah um the colors in the camera work were very similar to the to city of lost children um so i think that's part of Jeannot's trademark palette is the way that he shot the film lots of extreme close-ups yes um and then it was almost like a fisheye close-up because the the rest of the image would wrap around the the person who was in the center of the shot and it makes it seem very personal yeah for that reason um it's very cartoonish adventurous and playful in my opinion and honestly just a few minutes into the beginning of the film it made me think of one American director who I was like, oh man, this just really reminds me. They have the same aesthetic and mm-hmm. the same kind of feel, and that's Wes Anderson. Yeah. Very similar, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Wes Anderson has a lot of really good movies, uh, like The Fantastic Mr. Fox. And Haven't seen that one yet. Um, the Grand Budapest Motel looks amazing. I haven't yet had Doesn't an opportunity good. Um, to see that one. Ones that I've definitely seen of his that I really enjoyed. Bottle Rocket, which was a very early one. Obviously, The Royal Tenenbaums was really good. Uh, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a Wes Anderson film I've seen that I did not enjoy. Yeah. And, and part of... Like you were saying, it's it's lighthearted, it's cartoonish, it's so it's playful, yeah, it's so playful. I, 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 it has a lot to do with how he chose to edit the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's a lot of stuff going on where it's fast editing, very very quickly put together, and then um, he does a lot of um, there's a lot of slapstick elements to the film. I love like the very beginning. Um, and this is a technique that he uses throughout the film to help establish character, is he gives um, examples of things that they like and things that they don't like. Yeah, it's like a quick introduction, like a quick rundown of, here's a person, this is all you need to know about them to inform you of how they approach their their own life. Right, like for Amelie's mother, and, and this was an interesting one, he was talking about how she hates 
her fingers getting wrinkled in the bathtub mm-hmm. from the water. And she also hates when people touch her hands. Uh, and she has a very bad nervous tick when, whenever she has to deal with people. So it's interesting that uh, like a significant amount of her personality were wrapped up in her hands. Right. Know? Well, and it was interesting because when she, a lot of the time when they were pointing out people's likes, they were very small things that yes. are like calming. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because that's something that I think everyone can really relate to if you think about right. it. Like, if you don't spend the time to really think about it and think, well, you know, what small things that I do, like, calm me down or just make me kind of happy, um, you you wouldn't be able to really relate. But just think about it for a second. And there, everybody has those things. Like me, like, I like I pick at, at like, kind of the skin around my fingernails mm-hmm. um, a little bit. And that's just kind of something that is, like, it's not a nervous thing. It's just kind of, like, a, for some reason, kind of soothing it's you know, just it's just something you do. Yeah, it's just something I do. You know, some people, uh, you know, when they're trying to concentrate on something, they like to like you know mess with a stress ball or something, mm-hmm. and that just kind of keeps them occupied. You know, everybody has like these very small odd things that are fun or calming to them. Well, and some of them, some of these things can can develop into habits that people identify with you. Mm-hmm. Like for example. Um, with my job, I'm a call center person. So a lot of times I have answers for questions that I've, I've pretty much said so many times. I just repeat the same thing over and over again. And, um, my coworkers make fun of me for it. Like they, they know exactly what I'm going to say when I answer the phone. They know exactly what I, I'm going to say when I, I'm explaining certain things to the, to the people who are calling in. And so it's like, it's funny because they'll start, I'll, they'll start saying it along with me sometimes. Um, and also another thing, like, uh, personality-wise, I really enjoyed listening to music. Mm-hmm. You know, so so that's something that I'll do um, whenever I have a free moment is I'll turn on some music or something like that. Um, even if it's just over my phone in my head, my in my earbuds while I'm working. You know, it's something that soothes me, something that makes me feel comfortable and allows me to concentrate better. Something interesting for this film, or important for the film, that I found interesting. Uh, they develop um, Amelie's character by explaining her parents. And they seem very, like, obsessive uh, people who are not all that interested in their own daughter. No. They're, they're very self-absorbed, quirky people. Yes. And that really sets up who Amelie is, because she is kind of the same. You know, she's very interested in the small things in life and she doesn't really interact with people all that much she's very quiet uh she's kind of like she seems pretty cut off from human interaction Mm -hmm. especially at the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. um and i i love like their description of like um her amelie's childhood because because one of my favorite scenes is there you know you know gets into a little bit about her childhood and um what what happens is she has a fish named Blubber, and um, for one reason or another, her parents decide that Blubber is no longer good for her. Because so, he was suicidal. Oh, that's right. Is he, what they said. He, he kept yeah, jumping. He out. kept jumping out of the out of the bowl. So they they pour Puddle or Blubber into a uh, into a stream, and she gets so sad about Blubber being gone that they give her a camera. Because obviously cameras replace goldfish just fine. Oh yeah. So uh, that's why they have the website Snapfish. Yeah, exactly. For your cinematography. So what happens is that 
she's taking pictures of clouds that she sees that reminds her of bunnies and teddy bears and for some reason there's a car accident that happens and the frustrated driver who's her neighbor yells at her because of that so she thinks that the driver is or blaming her for the accident and so she then thinks that whenever she takes a picture there's an accident that happens turns on the news and sees all sorts of stories about planes crashing and economies just going in the toilet fires just all sorts of things that are going wrong with the world and she gets revenge on the uh, on the on her neighbor by climbing up onto his roof and sitting on there with a radio listening to the to the football game and whenever his team is about to score she unhooks his his television antenna. Yeah, and uh, that was one of my favorite scenes. That was hilarious. It's so funny because, yeah, she's like listening for when the important stuff's coming, and then she unplugs it, and it's all screwed up, and the guy's like, oh, he's like yelling at the TV and jumping up and down and just going crazy, and it's really exaggerated, so it just makes it that much more funny. It, I, and I, I've seen other people do that, like on YouTube videos, like um, TVs that can be controlled by cell phones now. Oh. That's like I gotta look at those videos. Yeah, there's this there's this one guy who's watching the Stanley Cup finals. Oh and and his girlfriend is like turning the television oh, off no. like right before something big happens and he just starts freaking out. He like rips up his couch, just pretty much destroys his den, and then he, she walks in and he's like, Are you doing this? Are you doing this? It, it's hilarious. Uh by the way, real quick, sorry not to break the flow, but did we say who this film was chosen by? I believe I'm not it, sure we did. I, Stephanie Grove. Yeah, Stephanie Grove. Yeah, and she's a she's a friend of ours who, yeah, who uh, does. Theater. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone check out Burn Thrower's Theater. Awesome. Very awesome. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Uh, yeah, so bunnies and teddy bears in a cloud with, followed up by bad TV signals. But you know what? She keeps up this kind of passive-aggressive behavior throughout the rest of her life. Yes. And it's delightful within the context of the film. Yeah. Um, because she'll just go seek out a creative way to get back at somebody, a very non-confrontational way, which she obviously does it to the guy who is the, uh, the owner of that produce stand. Yes. Um, all the things that she does, and she does it at numerous points throughout the film, it's just so fun to be like, I remember watching it, and when he would come to the part where she she goes back into his apartment, I'm like, oh, what's she gonna do this time? Yeah, it's it's very awesome. To to give a little bit of a, a back uh, the background story for that, um, the produce stand worker has an assistant who, according to some reviews that I read, was an amputee, oh. um, which I didn't catch in the movie at all. Well, he always has his one one coat arm in the pocket. Yeah. I guess that would make sense. I didn't really pick up on it necessarily. Yeah. I thought maybe there's something wrong with right. his arm. Yeah, but he's also a um, he's also a bit, a bit slow, or at least the the grocery store owner thinks he's slow. But really, what he's doing is he loves to to paint pictures of fruit. So he's actually going through the fruit, looking for good mo- models for his his art. He was another great character, yeah. by the way. Really yeah. enjoyed him, and um, and. So she gets fed up with how this guy is being treated. So she takes uh, the grocery store owner's key and copies it and then goes into his apartment and does all sorts of crazy things. Like she takes his slippers and 
it replaces them with a, the same slippers but a smaller size. Yeah. Um, she puts like sugar or salt or something I, in his alcohol. His salt in his whiskey, I believe. Yeah. And then uh, she also switches her, his toothpaste for foot cream. Yeah. Um, and switches the doorknobs switches on one of his knobs, doors yeah. because they're different on each side. Yeah. All sorts of fun stuff. And, and then it, it, it starts escalating where she sticks a pin into his electrical cables so oh, it will yeah. explode when he it turns on the lights. The guy starts kind of coming unhinged because of all the things that are happening and he doesn't know what the heck is It's hilarious. He, go, he goes to call her, his mother and she switched out his, his phone numbers for uh, a psychological helpline. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. It, it's... And those small things, that's what I mean by, like, it, it's a playful film. It really is a playful film and it just looks that way, yeah. too, cinematography-wise. And I love how, how she sees herself while she's doing this as kind of this avenging hero who's sneaking in to do them, uh, to, 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 to reverse the fortunes of someone who's been cruel. Mm-hmm. So she sees herself as Zorro. She does. And the, the thing, too, is she doesn't just go the one way and try to, you know, non-confrontationally punish people that she thinks are bad people, but she tries to help people as well and yeah. do very small things to kind of lead them to a path that is good for them. Yeah. At least what she observes as being good for them. And sometimes it actually backfires a little yeah, bit. Yeah, uh, especially in the story of uh, the tobacconist and the bar the bar uh, patron. Yeah. Uh, essentially, she works in the 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 weird dis- dysfunctional French version of Cheers. Yeah, I can see that. That's yeah. a good way to put it. She's um she's a, a waitress at this uh, the bar, and um, these people are always in there. One of them is a failed writer, the other one is a um, is a, a very obsessive jilted lover. Yep. Um, who who obsesses over another one of the waitresses, and then there's the tobacconist, and the tobacconist she is just a, a, a mess because she she thinks there's something wrong with her, her something different that's wrong with her yeah. every other day. A little neurotic. A little bit. Yeah. So um, so to to help the obsessive lover, the obsessive jilted lover, and the object of his affection, and the toba- tobacconist. She suggests to uh, to him. Well, you know what? I think I think the tobacconist tobacconist's name was Gina. She's like, you know what? Gina's really kind of into you. And then and then he, she goes over to Gina and she goes, he's not really into her anymore. He he's into you. Yeah. And then he she goes around to different people in the town and tells them, oh yeah, they're a thing now. So then people start asking her, asking Gina, oh when when did you guys get together and. You know, how long have you been a couple and everything like that? But then it backfires when the obsessive lover starts showing the same kind of attention to Gina as he was to his previous relationship. And that's just one of the examples, for me, of how this film is about perception of things. Yeah. And that's what I really enjoyed about the film, is it was really a look at how everything is being perceived. Because there are numerous ways to perceive to perceive the exact same thing. Yeah. And you could do it in a negative way and you can do it in a positive way. And when you're perceiving things differently, it's going to lead to different life decisions, which can put you on negative or positive paths in life. And you see that Amelie basically becomes this agent of change by doing small things for people. You yeah. know, she she notices someone's having a terrible 
you know, time, like the, the jilted lover, you know, he's there and he's miserable all the time. And she's like thinking to herself, you know, how can, how can this be fixed? Mm -hmm. So she tries to fix him up with the tobacconist and because she's not very happy with her life either. Right. And she's like, well, these people are so curmudgeon -y, maybe I can get them together and they'll fall in love and it, it'll turn everything around. And by doing the small things that she did, yeah. which... You know, there was no way that they were going to talk to each other otherwise, most right. likely. So just by saying a few little things, by changing their perception of the other, because they never even even would really look at each other. Right. You know, but she points them out to one another and be like, oh, well, he's interested in you. And then to him, she's interested in you. And then they start thinking differently about that person. Yeah. There's a great line in the movie where... where She's trying to, to, to put the idea in Gina's mind that, you know, this guy is interested in her. And Gina, I believe it's Gina, she says something about, well, he's just, he's just so nutty, you know, and, uh, and meaning that in a very derogatory way, like he's, he's a little on the crazy side and everything like that, um, which is probably true. But, but, you know, a lot of times um, people who are acting in ways that we don't understand or they might be they might be acting that way because they're in some kind of emotional pain, or there's some other motivation for it that you just that you just don't you, see. you don't know. But if you talk to them, you can right. potentially find out exactly, and maybe even sympathize with. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's one of the big things that this points out is that everything comes down to perception of what's going on. Like you can easily change your own outlook. Yeah, on what's happening, you can easily make small decisions in your life that will change things to positive or negative. Yeah. And there's a great character in the movie called the Glass Man. The Glass Man is one of her, one of the uh, uh, tenants in the same apartment building as Amelie who has a condition um, that leaves his bones very brittle. And it, they s describe it as if he shakes your, if you shake his hand too hard, you can actually break the bones of his hand. Mm -hmm. So um, he's living in this very isolated world, where all he has for for um, personal gratification is watching his neighbors and painting the same painting over and over and over and over again. And there's this, it's a Renoir painting that he's copying. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this girl in the center of the painting who's drinking from this glass. And he says that he can never get her right because it seems like her emotions are always changing. Yeah, and that's the thing. It, it kind of seemed to me because he would uh, describe the other people that he painted. And it seemed like he could only paint them if he could understand their motivations in life. Yeah. And, I mean, that obviously goes hand in hand with the fact that he watches his neighbors because he's observing their behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just found that, like, very fascinating. Uh, someone who really takes the time to observe what other people are doing. And I think that's kind of what sparks Amelie's interest in paying more attention to what people are doing in their life and becoming an agent of change herself to direct them one way or yeah, another. He, he essentially pushes her, her in that direction mm -hmm. by telling her, look at the world around you and see what you can see. Well, and the the woman in the painting that he's having a hard time painting because he can't understand her 
is becomes a metaphor for Amelie herself because mm-hmm. she starts bringing things up. Well, well, you know, you maybe n- don't understand her because of this and because of that, and everything she's saying is describing her own life. Yeah, well, and how she is. She's lonely. She she, she had a, a childhood where her parents ignored her. Yep. X Y Z A B C. All of these things that she's describing about the girl drinking from the glass are really things that she's feeling in her own life. And the glass man picks up on this pretty right. quickly. Yeah. And I think that was kind of her way to... I don't think she would ever in her life talk to someone, be open and talk to people about that. But that's kind of her way of getting it off her chest and getting it out there without feeling like she's actually saying it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And also, she sees such positivity from being able to do these little things for people and to reach out for them in ways that they wouldn't expect. Because, um, like the the Netflix description says, um, she finds this little uh, basket of toys. Not a basket, a little tin. Little tin box. Yeah. yeah. And um, and she just she goes on this quest to find out who lived in that apartment at that time and everything like that. And it turns out it's a man who's still in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know. And so she gets him to go into a phone booth, and. There, sitting on the on the phone booth, is his collection of toys, and uh, he goes into the bar there where she's working, and she and he starts telling this story about how finding this the, this box of toys has reminded him about his his own childhood, and it's inspired him to connect with his uh, daughter that he's estranged from, and to actually be a part of his grandson's life as well. Yeah. You know, and so she sees this positive interaction with somebody. So she starts looking for other people that she can influence in a positive way. There's a, a blind beggar who um, earns his money by playing songs on a phonograph. So she gives him this whirlwind tour of the neighborhood, describing all sorts of positive little things about what's going on in the neighborhood. That's cool. Uh, and then she also, she, that, that's how she comes across Nino is that she sees this guy who's collecting photographs all the time from the photo booth, like the p- photographs that people drop and, and they, that slide underneath the, the booth and everything like that or just throw away in the trash. And he's very much of her, home, her own ilk yeah. in, in the sense that he's looking at the very you know odd things in life and, and small things that bring him joy, mm-hmm. and they're very much the same in that sense. So... Early on, you can tell they're a match, and that most likely it's moving towards some sort of romance. But what I do want to say also about all the things that she does for people, I feel like she's partially doing that to feel better about herself and avoid dealing with her own issues and and avoid making her own uh, decisions in life. Because if she's busy being an agent of change for everyone else, she doesn't have to stop and focus on what's wrong and what she can improve in her own life. Right. And and that's one of the things that she she originally sees Nino as a project because he yeah. loses his photograph book. Mm-hmm. So she sees him as a project because she wants to return the book to him. But as she goes along and looks at the photographs and sees that he's someone who's interested in enjoying the little things in life, then she decides, well, maybe this is someone who I could be interested in. Because she had... The film makes it pretty apparent that she's had other um, lovers before, but could not identify with them on, on a more basic level. 
Yeah, I mean, it even has the uh, the recap where she's going over some of those relationships, and you know, one of them shows she's having sex, and the guy's on top of her thrusting, and she's just like she's her just eyes like, are like wandering around the room, kind of like this is awkward. This is very boring. I don't yeah. know what's going on. Yeah. So she's she. She tries to connect with him on a level of, I want to do something nice for you. But then it evolves into something where she doesn't understand her feelings. So she keeps on trying to treat it in the same way that she was treating the little things that she was doing. But it's not enough to connect. And she keeps on having missed connections with him. Yeah, but I I think they're kind of intentionally missed. Yeah, they're intentionally. Because that's more exciting to her. That's more interesting. Like... It's her way to feel like she's kind of trying to have a relationship with him, but not committing to like actually having a relationship with him. Yeah, and the amount of amount of time and effort she puts into making sure yeah. that they intentionally miss the connections. And the thing is, he plays back. He, yeah. he does the exact same thing, and it seems like they have such a fun time doing it. And from a viewer's standpoint, it's a fun thing to watch. It's a very, once again, playful thing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like playful is my... My word of the episode for this film. Yeah, but it, it's great because they can they establish that you know there's this connection there that's more than just something that's physical. You know, it's something where they, these two people identify with each other on a level that is personal. You know, well, it's like it's a it's a quirky level. Yeah, you know what I mean. And <clears throat> typically for relationships, it's the quirky qualities that would create the issues. Yeah, and in this instance, if that's what they're bonding over is the quirky qualities, then I feel like it's, it probably would set a pretty good foundation for, for a legitimate relationship. Yeah. Well, it's like um, I always – my, my girlfriend and I, we always describe our relationship as being founded on sarcasm and a love for East Asian food. <laughs> So that sounds awesome. Yeah. I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that's that's one of the things that's great is that you know when you find something that you can identify with somebody on uh um on a more fundamental level mm-hmm. than just raw attraction. Right. Then that that relationship is going to be something that's firm and solid and it's going to last a long time. Well, I would also say especially when it's something that's very I don't know if specialized is the right word for it, but something that's just that's very unique to you. Yeah, very unique. Um, you know, I don't know, good example would be obviously within the film uh Amelie. I mean, you know, Nino's collecting all those all those photos and how many people would see him and be like, "Oh, that's interesting. I'm interested in what you're in what you're doing." Yeah. Um I guarantee pretty much everyone who who would know what he's doing would be like, you're weird. Yeah. You know, I have no interest in that. And also because there's this one person who keeps on appearing in the photos um, and then ripping them up and and disposing of them, and they don't know why. Well, he's trying to be a detective then. Like, he he has some sort of purpose in life that he's given himself. And this is another aspect of the film that I found interesting, which is it kind of makes the statement of, imagination is significantly more satisfying than the truth. Yeah. Because that's what happens. Because he's trying to figure out who is this guy and why does he always look the same? He just looks serious. Like, dead stare. You know, like, he's never smiling. He's never doing anything fun. And in the end, you find out it's because he's the maintenance man for the thing. And when he's fixing it, it just takes photos of him. So he's just focused on doing his work 
And that's why he always looks the same. Yeah, and those photos that he's producing, that's like him testing the equipment to make sure that the photo booth is yes. working appropriately. And the thing is, when when Nino finds out that this guy is the is the maintenance man, I'm sure there's a, there is a level of relief. You can see that on his face. There's a level of relief like, oh my gosh, finally, like I had the answer. I bet at the same time he's kind of let down because A... The story in your head that you you build when when especially with how however much time he was spending on mm-hmm. trying to figure out who this guy was is so much more grandiose and interesting. Yeah. And second of all, you know, just it's over. You know, and, and the mystery is over, and that's no fun. But the, you know, the the same thing could be said about his relationship with Amelie. Yeah. You know, because they spend so much time, like developing who this person is in their own mind, and not even talking to each other. That they fall in love with the concept of being in love with somebody who's as interesting and as quirky as they are, but you know, they 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 then when once they meet, the mystery then becomes well, what else can I find out about you? Right, and maybe you know what you're talking about makes me think maybe this is a fundamental issue with why some people end up having issues within their own relationships is because I see it all the time like people love the excitement of dating. And they're just like, oh, this is new and it's so much fun. It's it's because it's it's like this cat and mouse game. I yeah, mean, I, I wouldn't say cat and cat, mouse. Not game. cat and this, mouse. This but playful back and forth yeah, game. It's between, a banter game. Yeah, between Amelie and Nino, and that's what you get when you're dating someone. You're you're just pulling these little bits of knowledge out of them of like, oh, okay, well, what was this like in your life, and what was this like, and you know, what are your little quirks? What do you like? What do you do? You know, and you can see what you have in common and what you don't. But then when you're with someone for a long period of time and you hear people say like seven years people tell me this all the time they're like seven years and then you start having problems is it at a point where you know people are just kind of like i i know everything there's no more excitement because i know this person the mystery is gone yeah the mystery is gone and the playfulness is gone and that's why i guess they say like a lot of people who um are kind of like relationship therapists and stuff like that will kind of say that the um the key is to keep things fresh in a sense, like have date nights that you set up so that, you know, you're doing something spontaneous. Always be doing like little things for each other. Like even if you can go out and just like, you know, I'll give you a prime example. Rebecca one day um, just randomly, she, without telling me, went to the liquor store, came home and she had a beer that I had always been meaning to pick up and I never did. And I just really wanted to try and she's like, I got this for you just because. Yeah, and you know it's that fun little surprise, and then that re-enters into your mind. There could be another surprise coming up at some point. When if that doesn't happen to you, in your mind you're just kind of like everything's going to be the same every day. It's a routine, you know. It's always funny because um, my parents do that all the time. Like my my dad will like, um, it. it he'll write notes on the on the mirrors like in uh in soap for my mom you know and what's cool yeah and and he'll also like make these huge posters and put them in the backyard for her to find you know (laughs) and and stuff like that that's very amelie and nino it very much is but what's what's really funny is that my i have a sister who's 10 and she's picked up on this, so she starts leaving notes on the on the bathroom mirrors and like all like oh, this funny. this um this soap that's all like um, smashed on there and everything like that. So she's trying to have that same relationship with my parents that my parents have with each other. It's it's really cute to see. Yeah, that's cool. So 
for me, the the things that I really love about this film in general are just like the 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 commentary on perceptions mm -hmm. and how people perceive things differently. And you can perceive the exact same thing one way or the other based on what you know about it. Yeah. Or don't know about it. Because I see that all the time. And then the other aspect of the truth versus imagination. And imagination is so much more fun. And a great example for the imagination one, for me, everyone knows I really like horror films. Right. When you don't show the monster in a film is usually a lot better than when you show it. Because your imagination as a viewer is always going to be so much more interesting yeah. than when you see the monster that's been created. I think we've talked about Jaws in the same way before right. on the podcast. Is like they didn't have the technical ability to create the monster, Jaws, as they wanted to. But they were able to use the score and cinematic techniques to show this creature that was enormous and frightening and you know, the people's minds built it up in such a way that it enhanced the experience because you only saw little bits of the monster every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, a great example for me would be, and I know we've talked about this director a few times, M. Night Shyamalan, his film Signs. Yeah. Um, when you see the alien at the end, it's very unimpressive. Yeah. At least in my opinion, because in my imagination it was so much better. What was great in the film was, like... The, the best part that sticks out to me when the kid was being tucked in at night and he looks outside and the silhouette of the alien on top of the barn yeah. against the moon that if you just would have done that and then the part where he's in the basement and these alien hands just come out and grab him out of nowhere if you just had those and you never showed the whole alien yeah so much more powerful and, well, and, the, and then the hand reaching under the door yeah exactly yeah when you don't see the whole thing, your imagination creates something so much better. I think that's one of the reasons why, um, going back to Star Wars... Oh, jeez. Yeah. Here he goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone step back. But the thing is that when you... The whole Jedi Order that you see is Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. It seems more interesting. Like, there's kind of almost a frontier feel about it. You, you have this idea that there are only these two people against all of the injustice in the world. Yeah. But then when you go back and you watch the new trilogy, the one that was one, two, and three, chronologically speaking, it shows that the Jedi Order is a very bureaucratic, politically driven, almost... It's it's so disappointing to to see what it actually is compared yeah. to what it what the portrayal of it is in your imagination from the ori the original three movies. And how about also how the Force works? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when when it's more mystical and you don't know how someone's sensitive to the Force, your imagination comes up with something much better. And then you hear, oh yeah, the, we have a simple facts, blood test. Uh, blood test is metachlorians. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, perfect example. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, one of the other things I wanted to say about this film is it points out to me that within life, so many people allow their moods to be dictated by other people and yeah. other people's actions. Oh my gosh. I when, honestly, victim. the only person who can control your moods is you. Right. Ultimately. I mean, you can say, you know, well, this person did this thing and it made me upset. Or right. they did this to me and it made me upset. Understandable. But... You choose, you can choose 
Let me put it that way. Knee-jerk reaction, how you just naturally, you know, respond versus if yeah. you stop and think about it and respond can be different. You choose how to react to things, and you choose what mood you're in. Yeah. And one of the things that I found very interesting about when I've looked into um, Buddhist writings mm -hmm. is that it, it really speaks to that, to mm -hmm. you have the ability to make yourself happy every single day and positive. If you focus on one thing, even the smallest thing every day that can make you smile, you should do it. Yeah. Even if it's the smallest thing that you step outside and you can see that the sky's blue and it looks pretty. Yeah. You can smile about that. You know, anything. Even if there's all sorts of terrible things going on in your life, if you can have one positive thing and you can choose to focus on that one positive thing and that will make your life so much more positive. And you know, that's something that's really hard to do for me personally. I think it's hard for everyone. Yeah. It's hard for me. It's everyone I know it's tough. I think I think for me though is that I choose a lot of times to make something that's happening to somebody else personal for me. You right. Know? And and that that's especially hard like when you're working in an environment where people are like, but I need this for my job. You oh, know, okay. Um, yep. Because then it's like, well, I'm sorry, but I can't give you what you want because there are restrictions that are in place. Well, and then sometimes those people make it personal. Like they, they feel like it's you, it's you personally saying kind of F you. Um, and that's why, you know, my, in my personal life, whenever I have to talk to someone, when I call a call center, I say, you know, if I have a complaint, I always start off by saying, this is nothing personal with you. I know you have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Now I will tell you what my issue is. Yeah. Because but I, a lot of people don't think that way. Right. And because I, I don't want people to get upset. You know, yeah. I don't want to negatively affect people's moods intentionally. Are there times in my life where I have done that where I want to negatively affect someone's mood? Yes. Oh, yeah. Is that wrong? Yes. Shouldn't do things like that. You get caught up in the moment sometimes, and I understand that. You should just, you know, do the best you can to not do that stuff. But, I mean, a, a, a great example from Amelie about this is that, that thing that we talked about when she was a child and there was that car accident and the guy was yelling at her even though she had nothing to do with the accident. She was just standing on a corner and... That affected a lot of her life. Yeah, that really changed the course of her life right. in a lot of ways. So the small thing that he did, you know, once again showing the theme of being able to be an agent of change for good or for bad in mm -hmm. people's lives. You know, it's kind of this, it's this duality of, you know, you have people trying to influence mood, and then you have people choosing to go one way or, or the other with what other people are doing. I, I, you know what, I once, I once heard that to positively reinforce a behavior in somebody, it, you have to provide positive reinforcement seven times. You know, but to negatively impact somebody, you only have to provide negative feedback one time. Sounds pretty accurate. You know, so it takes more, more times to build a positive reinforcement feedback loop in somebody's mind when it only takes one. Because, the, I mean, you, you've got that nervous response of someone's yelling at you, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas... If it, it, you take a long time to build up this awareness and this level of comfort with um, someone telling you, you're doing a great job, you need to keep on doing you know, uh, the work positively. If someone says, you're doing a good job, but <laughs> all you're going to hear is what comes after the, yeah. the, the, con the conjugation there. 
You're yeah. not going to hear, you're doing a great job. You're it's, going it's, to, what, it's what's called the backhanded compliment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, I, I, you know, I can see that because when you hear one thing negative, like people are defensive by nature. So when you hear one negative I'm thing. I'm not defensive. How sure you say <laughs> yeah, that? exactly. You cling to that. But like that, that, it's hard to get that out of your mind because it bothers you. Yeah. When you hear something positive, it's easy not to dwell on that because, you know, I kind of feel like overall, at least within our current society, we're pretty negative creatures. Um, and so focusing on the bad versus focusing on the good becomes so much easier. So when you do hear the negative thing that one time, you're really going to dwell on it versus the positive things that you hear numerous times. Right. Well, and here, here's the thing. I think when someone chooses to focus on the positive, mm -hmm. then we're told by society in general, you're someone who's not looking at the world in a realistic manner. Yeah, you're you're an idealist. Yeah, and and that's an issue with you. And honestly, I would rather be an idealist who has you know a positive outlook on life because that actually it, it affects you. You're you have a better heart uh, health. You you have uh, lower stress in your life. You tend yeah. to live longer. Yeah. You know, if you always look at the negative, you're just going to drive yourself into an early grave. Well, you put yourself in just a funk, in, in, into a dark hole that you just live in. Yeah. And the the crazy thing to do is if you stop for a second and think about it and say, I'm choosing right now. I have made a conscious choice to be negative about these things when right now I could be thinking positively mm -hmm. about it and I could just be on my way doing all sorts of things, having fun and mm -hmm. just... You know, you you can make these choices. Yeah, it's it, not easy necessarily, but if you take the time to stop and focus on what's good, mm -hmm. you can live positive. Now, of course, we're talking about people who are in a, a position where they are able to think well. Correct. If you if you're in a p position where you need assistance, like sometimes you have to work through issues with other people, uh, with especially trained physicians or counselors or someone like that so that you are able to get to a place and sometimes that might involve uh, being on on a regimen of medication for a while yeah. but but please be aware that you know si the situation can get better oh yeah you know uh, always there, and there's not something that's holding you back all the time you know and I think I think that's something that we forget it was like we were talking about um, that that movie, I think we're alone now. Mm -hmm. The character Jeff seems like a very positive person, yeah. But he's focusing on what he can't, what he is able to focus on. Exactly. You know, fo he's focusing on things that he can control. Yeah, things that he can understand. But he's all he, he was also weaving his own perception of things, his own reality. Right. When many other people would look at it and be like, "Well, that's not the reality." But that's his reality. That's the reality that he's created. And that happens in Amelie. You know, yeah. Amelie has created her own reality, but sometimes it's a reality that um, she's using to not focus on the issues in her life. So she kind of needs to, you need to be able to deal with the negative things, but stay positive. Well, and she, she lets her uh, her imagination run to the negative side at one point of the movie. She does. Yeah. Where, like, um, she has some photos of animals in her bedroom, and she also has a toad nightstand or a uh, lamp. And so she's just imagining that these 
pictures and the lamp are having a conversation and the lamps they like the pictures say well couldn't a girl like her get together with a guy like nino and the lamp says no ain't gonna happen <laughs> the world the world isn't set up that way you know and so she's letting her imagination which should be a source of of, of joy for her just run towards the negative and, and just follow that that established path that you go down of of self-doubt and, and uh, negativity. Yeah. Um, something different about this film that I wanted to talk about. The uh, I enjoy films that show a lot of cityscape, and this film does that, and to great effect. The cityscape is gorgeous, at least how it's shown in the film. Yeah. Um, so I just really found that to be a bright point. I love the bar that she worked in. I think it was called The Two Windmills. Yeah, that was cool. That it's actually a real place. It's oh, a real cool. bar in Paris that you can go to. Nice. Um, so I think it was a lovely atmosphere. Why can't there be more bars like that in America? No idea. It's different everywhere, you yeah. know. Cultural differences. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, like I said, it reminded me so much of Cheers. Yeah. You know, like everybody knew everybody. You were, you, you might not be friends, but you you at least understood where they were coming from and tolerated them and. Well, like and that. when you think about that, a lot of it has to do with perception. Like, what do, what do people look at? Which, you know, obviously ties back to the film. Yeah. You know, what do people view as something that is appropriate for where they live? Yeah. And that kind of bar is not necessarily going to be appropriate for places in the United States. But also from, you know, piggybacking off that to talk about perceptions, it recently it um, I was talking to some people and they had brought up something about a person that they knew who was in their 50s and they were still living with their parents. And how they're like, oh, that's creepy, oh, that's weird, whatever. And they were like, what do you think? To which my response was, well, I don't know the person's situation. And the thing is this. You are looking at it from an American perspective. Yeah. Whereas if you lived in Japan, it wouldn't look so weird because there are three generations that typically live together in the same house in Japan. Mm -hmm. To which their response was, Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Like, that makes sense. Another example is in Italy, it's very common for unmarried men to still live with their parents. Mm -hmm. um, now, with the way that modern society is, uh, marriage has been pushed off in Italy for a long period of time. So people are, it's funny because I've heard of people who still live with their parents, but then they have an apartment to take their girlfriends yeah. to. But this is an example of how it's one thing mm -hmm. that doesn't change. Right. But based on what you think about around it, how you think, your feelings on it change. And that can apply to your everyday life, too. Oh, absolutely. It's the way you look at other people, the way you judge other people, but the way you look at your own life and the way that you judge yourself. Yeah. You know, it's one thing, and you make the choice to think about it one way or the other. Is the glass half empty or is it half full? Yeah. I mean, basically. And... It, Oh, okay, I'm not even really going to get into that. I was going to bring up another example, but that would probably just take way too much time. Sure. Um, but it, it was just going to be another example of, you know, I don't know all the circumstances, and there are numerous ways to look at things. Absolutely. And that's just how it is. And I, I believe that this film, that Amelie, is very cool in the sense that it brings up so many interesting philosophical questions mm -hmm. i mean at least for me it did and it's also it, it, the story is fun it zips along it's it's a it's an entertaining movie to watch that also makes you think in no way did this feel like a two-hour film yeah i mean it felt like maybe an hour and a half 
you know it it moves along at such a great pace the editing is really well done it looks great and it's 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 nice it sounds like you're ready to go ahead and give your rating for this film ah uh, okay yeah i'm ready sounds like perfect time Okay, so Amelie, like I said, very fun film. It's very playful. It's very, it, it's just so adventurous, the whole thing. The acting is very well handled. The directing was really well done. The cinematography looks great. The colors they used. The cityscape is beautiful and well used. Um, the script is so smart and fun. You know, the whole philosophical thing of like truth versus imagination and people's different perceptions and being able to be an agent of change in other people's lives as well as your own life. Mm -hmm. You know, all these things were just so great. And even if you don't want to think it, think about it on that, you know, deeper level, it's still just at the surface, just a fun film to watch because of the way they have like all these cool close up shots and, you know, focusing on the very small things that people barely ever think about in life and, and the joys that you can derive from them. Uh, it's just a cool film, and it's well done, and I enjoyed it. And I want to give it four stars. Okay. I like it. I liked it, too. Um, so, like I said before, I was, I've was i been a fan of uh, Jeunet's work in other films, um, specifically C City of Lost Children. Um, so it was really fun to watch this movie uh, and to see his cinematic vocabulary come across on the screen um, mm -hmm. and used, used in a lot of the same ways uh, in, in telling, but telling a very different story um, and a story that's ambitious in different ways. Um, I loved, uh, like you said, the look of the film and yeah. the way that uh, it was edited together. Something that we didn't mention that I thought was a really great technique that helped the story move along quite a bit was the use of voiceover in the film. Oh, yes. Yeah, because the voiceover, at the very beginning of the film, there's a lot of voiceover work explaining what's going on and moving the story along very quickly. But as the film goes on, the the voice work actually, the over-screen the the over um, narration drops away and the story becomes more and more not about who Amelie is, but what she's thinking about. Yeah. You know, and how she's reacting to things. And um, it's still there throughout the entire movie, but it's an interesting technique, and it's a technique that works very well to, to convey what's happening in the emotional side of the story. So uh, that was something that I really liked. Um, I enjoyed the, the use of the lists to help establish characters quickly and give you... Um, uh, sense of what's going on. I also liked how the film used actual modern events to help inspire what happened, especially Princess Di's death. Oh yeah, um, because that that's a, a major plot point in the entire film, um, and the film has almost become a bit of um, our cultural identity. Especially um, there's a there's a subplot involving a garden gnome traveling all over the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was fun. You know, and that's actually been picked up by travel agencies and used as kind of a, um, a, a trademark at this point. Yeah. So the, the film has... In, Amelie has entered into the cultural subconscious and I think is, uh, is moving along quite nicely in terms of becoming a Hallmark film. Um, a lot of people, this will probably be the only French film they ever see. Um, and it's a good French film. Yeah. Uh, so, kudos for uh, Jude for creating such a, a good piece of uh, property. It speaks well for for the cultural landmarks as well. Um, I, I'll go ahead and give this four stars as well. All right, four stars overall for this uh, film. I uh, would go so far as to say that uh, Jean Pierre Jeunet, 
I'm going to be seeking out more of his films to yeah. watch just because I'm very intrigued. Oh, and I had forgotten to mention, and I don't know if you did, that he was also the writer of the script mm-hmm. yeah, for this did. film, which is awesome. Yeah, he had to. He, he originally meant it for an English actress and then had to rewrite it when she had to drop out of the project. I think you did talk yeah. about that. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, so, Amelie, great film. Stephanie Grove, thank you so much for uh, recommending this to us. Hopefully you feel that we did justice to the film with this review. I hope we did, too. Yeah, I, and again, thank you so much for making such a great suggestion. Yeah. If anybody else has a suggestion they would like to make, uh, you can go ahead and contact us uh, through MostExcellentMovieNight at gmail.com, or you could go ahead and leave a note on our website as well. Uh, feel free to just make a comment, and we'll be more than glad to take a look at that and see if we can review, review that movie for you. Uh, one thing, we're coming close to October. Uh, we're planning on doing a, an entire month worth of scary movies. Horror films. Yes. yes. I'm going to be in heaven. He, he's very excited about this. He's Guess what excited. else? Mm. You're going to love this, Jordan. I was so excited about it. I looked at the calendar and realized there are five Thursdays in October. Five Thursdays in October. So there will be five horror films that we do for October. And I was I was like, oh man, is it going to be four or is it going to be five? So jackpot. Yes. So... So you're going to get to hear all of our scary movie reviews coming up in the very near future. But if you have any horror suggestions that you would like to make, yeah. please go ahead and let us know because I think because of where we are in the year, those will get bumped up to the top of the list. Oh, yes. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a great week. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production.